We're in our second week of a series we've entitled Gospel Community, establishing what it means uh, to be a family and why we're a family and, and what that should look like uh, week in and week out for us each day as followers of Christ who've joined together uh, to advance the mission of Christ. And, and we began last week with just the discussion of the reality that we are a family, that uh, that is the most prominent depiction of our interaction with other Christians, is that we're a family. And we're a family because we've been born again, spiritually made alive, and coming into a new family because of God's goodness to us. And we're a family because we've been adopted and we've been welcomed in as, as heirs to the inheritance of Christ. The Bible even says co-heirs with Jesus. That we share in all the blessings that are His because of God's goodness to us. And it's the work of God that has made us a family. And it's the grace of God. It's a gift to us that we have one another. Which at times uh, we might doubt because to be honest we're all a little dysfunctional. When we were small kids my dad just gave us a real nice talk where he said son I just want to let you know something. You come from a dysfunctional family. That's going to save you thousands in counseling as you get older. Just know it now. And every family is dysfunctional in in, in a way or another. And it's funny when you get on the inside, you begin to see that. You begin to see, okay, this this guy's a little quirky that way. And Uncle Joe's great until about 10 o'clock and then he gets crazy. And then... And you begin to kind of navigate family environments and learn that we're all a little weird. We have one uncle, Frank or Sam, depending uh, who's referencing him. And I remember this great time. We had an aunt also. The names are awesome in my family, uh, which makes naming your children after uh, family names somewhat difficult, particularly when it comes to girls. And uh, so we have an aunt, Bert. Um, Now, Bert's name is Bertha, and I don't know... Bert was better. It was the, the better option. She was this neat lady who had lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico, had four-wheelers, would go shoot animals with you. She was a blast. It was actually my mom's aunt, so our great aunt. And she was describing uh, Uncle Sam or Frank. And he was, she was telling my dad, now, Mike, he's really changed. He's, just, he's, he's changed. He's a different guy. Now, I don't leave my purse around him, but he's really changed. <laughs> Every family's a little messed up. But we do have this identity as a family, and we all do. And if you pay attention in family settings, you'll begin to see or sense kind of this identity that exists in your family just by the traditions that they have and the stories that they tell. You know, you know the stories that get brought up over and over again every time you're together, and they're just as funny, just as entertaining as they were before. They tell us a lot about what's important to us. In our family, those stories are largely about, you know, football or hunting or, or, or you know, grandpa and dad's time in the military. Or stories about drilling well and the oil wells and the mishaps that happen out there. Because uh, for my brother and I are the first generation of Alderson men since they discovered oil not to drill it for a living. And since there have been wars not to be in the army, it seems to be kind of the trend. And so these are the stories. And, and, and as you can imagine, growing up in a family with a dad who, who was into sports and hunting and rodeo, we kind of had some stuff impressed on us. And so one of the skill sets that dad assumed every uh, young man needed to know was arc welding. And so, you know, I can remember being 12 or 13 and learning to weld because you ought to know how to do that. Well, I, I'm not teaching my kids welding, mostly because I'm worried that, that I'll do something horrible and blow up our house. Because... I haven't tried since I was 14, but it was important to know. And dad would have these things like, this is who we are. 
as a family. This is our identity, and it was reinforced over time. And, and we all have that, even if we're not conscious or aware of it. And as we define ourselves here in the church as the people of God as a family, you find these recurring things in the Scripture as well. But say, this is our identity. This is who we are. Almost like a family crest, if you could imagine it, where these are the things that are important for God's children, for God's sons and daughters, the church, to live out. And so we need to spend some time discovering our family identity. It's interesting, if you go through the history of Europe, you'll find something developed over time, which is a surname. Now, if you were uh, wealthy or a nobility or from a prominent family, you would be so-and-so of a location, right? And that would indicate that your family was the nobility over that location. You might be the count of, you know, wherever it was, right? But if you were commoners, like most of us, your trade became your last name. And so you, you'll find people with a last name like Miller because they ran the mill, or Tyler because they worked with tile, or Thatcher because they made thatch roofs. But last names in European culture kind of became an indicator of what they did. Maybe if you think about it in the first century in the life of Jesus, he didn't have really a last name like we would talk about it. He was Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. And so if he were in Western Europe, he might have been one of the carpenters. Now, not one of the ones that sing, but that might have been his name. You pick up these last names and what we did became so much connected with who we were that it was the name and the signifier of what we took on to be our identity. The Bible says, as God's people, we have a trade that establishes firmly our identity as a family. And I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's not the only place we'll be this week, this morning, but we're going to spend a little time there. And we went through 1 Peter, and I think it rightly sets the stage in describing the identity of the church, the identity of the people of God as a family. Beginning in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I want you to see in this, this subtle familial language that may not jump off the page to us, when he describes us as a, a race and as a people or a nation. Now, we don't think of race in terms of familial connection in any kind of close sense. In fact, when we think of race, largely the imagery that comes to mind for us is, is ethnicity or, or maybe even just to be simple or upfront about it, we, we think of like different shades of skin tone. So for us, the concept of race is determined by pigment more than anything else. But when you talk to a first century world, when they say we are a chosen race, they don't necessarily mean that we look drastically different from everyone else. I want to give you just a simple example of this. Abraham. Called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Ur is a great town, but you've got to say it like this. You've got to go, Ur. That's the way they said it. So if they had a soccer match against one of the other towns, they got to grunt louder as they chanted for their team. And that is Abraham's hometown, Ur of the Chaldees. So what that means is that Abraham is of a people group or a race known as the Chaldeans. And you might have heard of them if you study the Old Testament history or you're just a bit of a nerd. The Chaldeans later became called the Babylonians. 
So Abraham and Sarah, I want to be honest about their upbringing. They're Babylonians. That's who they are. And God called them out to create a new people, a new race. And so with the people of Israel, I want you to think through this. Obviously, over time, distinct genetic markers develop, right? Because it start with just one couple. But if you ran DNA tests and you would go over and talk to the Babylonians, your DNA would have a lot of similarity. That's where Abraham and Sarah are from. That's their family of origin. So the distinction between the nation of Israel as its own race and people and the people of Babylon as a race and people involves more than DNA. It involves an identity as a people. They shared a community identity that we're a people, we are a race, we are a nation. And that identity was established by God's call on them to come out and be His people. That calling began with a family. And he says, Abraham, your children, your descendants will become this great nation. But it's a familial discussion. Just to call them a race or a people. They viewed themselves as a large extended family. But notice how he, how he describes them. And this is going to be significant and important for defining our identity as a family. Our identity as a people. Is that he describes them as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's who they are. So that the function is priests for God as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's their identity. Their identity is a calling as a holy people. By God's grace and his calling, and you'll see that in a minute for his purpose to proclaim his glory. To be his possession, his treasure. That's what he's called us for. But it goes further back. It's not like Peter just sat down in First Peter and he wrote that and there's no background to what he said. This is central to the calling of Israel. If you flip back in the book of Exodus, into chapter 19, you're going to find God calling Israel with the same language. In verses 5 and 6. It says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses has to go to Israel and he's got to tell them something about following God. And he says, go tell them this. Go tell them that if you follow me, you'll be my treasured possession over and above all the peoples on the earth. You will be mine. And I'm going to bless you and make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You see where Peter's coming from. Is that God had called the people of Israel to this calling. He says, if you keep my covenant, if you walk faithfully with me, this is what I'm going to do for and through you. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul continues the discussion of the, this theme as he carries it out to defining how we roll together as a family. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus as being the cornerstone. 
So think through this with me. By the work of God's Spirit, we have access to the Father. Again, this is a family discussion, isn't it? He's our Father. We're His children. And it's the work of the Spirit that has made that relationship a reality where we believe that Jesus was the only Son of God who died for our sins in our place, suffering the righteous wrath of God for us. And that when we trusted Him and He rose from the grave, that we were given the rights to become children of God based upon faith. He says, because of that faith, you're one together as a family. You're one people by God's calling. You're no longer strangers. And what he's describing is this distance that existed between the people of Israel and and the Gentiles, which just means everyone who's not the people of Israel. So, all of us. Maybe some of you have some Jewish or Israelite background, but pretty much all of us, Gentiles. I remember when we were in college, a friend of mine went and and the best workout facility in our area was at the Jewish Community Center right on Bray's Bayou. So we're at the JCC and he's signing up for his membership. And one of the questions on the application is to categorize yourself in terms of which type of, of Jew you are. So he's got the question and it's now his dad's a pastor. And so it's it's like um, Orthodox, conservative, reformed, Hasidic. And he's like, do Hasidic Jews work out? Uh, and then he's like, there's no... So he goes and walks him. He says, is there a Gentile box? They were like, uh, just write that on the form. But you see, this, there, there's this break, right? There's, there's the Israelites who live a certain way, called out by God. And then there was everyone else. And there was this tension. Now, you can see immediately when you read the Exodus 19 passage that God's intention for the people of Israel was not to be separate and detached from the world, but rather to function as a kingdom of priests, engaging the world, drawing them near to God. But they, like us, often rejected that calling. And so they said, we're just going to be over here and do our thing. And then you're over there and you do your thing. And it created tension even more so when all of these non-Jewish guys who do crazy things like eating bacon became members of the church. Because if you think about a potluck, if you had been raised your whole life believing pork to be unclean, dirty and nasty, and then the guy next to you is eating bacon and you smell it and you realize, wait a minute. I've been missing something. You, you know they warn vegetarians that bacon is like a gateway meat? That it leads to other meat consumption. If you just wrap bacon around asparagus, you've got a, an entree. And, and so imagine that you're sitting at the potluck and this is what's happening. And we're brothers, but you're doing something that I just think is is wrong and disgusting. And so you could see just the simple practice of being family together, coming from these drastically different worlds and experiences, was creating tension in the church. And the book of Ephesians, which we're going to go into deeply in in the coming months, is addressing some of that disunity and saying, guys, you're one. You've been made one by God. That wall of hostility, that distinction's been broken down. You're one people now. And you're a family. And they've been invited into that same calling to be a kingdom of priests. They've been grafted in, as Paul would say. 
The story continues in Galatians 3. And I want you to see how this disunity within the body over these issues was a big deal. And one of the things I think we need to wrestle with, particularly as we're going to go through Ephesians, is how significantly it focuses on the unity of the church. Now, why in the world would the Bible constantly address disunity in the church, except that it's a common reality? It's a common experience. You know, mom never yelled, clean your room when it was clean. The the discussion of, of my room's lack of cleanliness was because it was, in fact, dirty. And when you read the New Testament, you're going to find constantly the church should be one. You're one family. You're one people. The apostles are addressing an issue that we still wrestle with today, which is being unified under a single mission and identity. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That means all of you who are Christians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Now I want you to think about what he's saying here. Now, is, is he saying when you come to church, there's no such thing as male or female and everyone's like Pat from the Saturday Night Live skit? No. Is he saying that there's no such thing as male or female? No. Is he saying there's no such thing as slave or free? No. Those people who were slaves, now it's different from our experience of slavery. You've got to understand that. They owned property. They had jobs. They might have been educated. But those people who were slaves, when they left the church gathering, you know what they still were? Slaves. And those people who were free, who were wealthy, property you know what they were when they, when they were left the church? They were still wealthy property owners. It's not that there was no distinction. Those people who were Jewish, they were still Jewish in heritage and experience. Those people who were Gentile were still Gentile in, in, in heritage and experience. What, what, what's he saying? You're one now, and all of those things that you would look at from a worldly perspective that would divide you and threaten to tear you apart are less important than what Christ has done that unifies you, that you are one people with a common experience of salvation, with a common understanding of your own sinfulness, a common understanding of the grace of God, and a common experience with the Holy Spirit. So you've been drawn into this family and the really important things you have in common. And there's a lot of things that seem obvious that are far less important that threaten to divide you. But you've been made one. And if you're in Christ, I want you to understand what he just said. You are now Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. The promises of God that have all been found, have found their home in Christ because of our relationship to Him, we are now heirs to. Well, what do you mean? Are we gonna, are we gonna get a piece of land in Israel? You gotta think bigger than that. Jesus is gonna come back and reign over the whole world, all of creation, and He says, if you follow me, you'll reign with me. We've been given these amazing promises and the identity of the children of Abraham finds its beginning in Genesis chapter 12 when God gives the initial promise to Abraham. Now, one of the things you'll note is that in Genesis 15, the covenant is made. But prior to that, God simply gives Abraham a promise and we are heirs according to the promise. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation 
and I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what God promises is to bless the children and descendants of Abraham, not so they could experience blessing alone, but so that they could become a transmitter to blessing to the rest of creation, so that all the world would be blessed through him. Now that promise, that particular offspring is Jesus. And Galatians points out to us, he doesn't say your offspring's plural, but to the one who was coming being Christ. But he says, you have been invited into that blessing and into that calling to be a blessing to the nations to be a holy people think about this the bible's most significant identifier for the people of god in describing the church is the holy ones of god so the bible uses the word saints to describe us as a holy people. Now, if you've got uh, maybe a different background, then saints might be something kind of reserved for people and they get their faces on the hurricane candles. And that's how you know you're a saint. But the Bible says, regardless of whether or not you ever get any publicity on candles, you're a saint if you walk with Jesus. Think about this. In the majority of the letters that Paul writes, he describes the church as saints. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, his introduction, he says to all, call, all those called to be saints. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Which is interesting. He says, those who are being made holy, sanctified, to the holy ones, the saints. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find out they were a mess. And yet, he calls them saints. Those being sanctified. 2 Corinthians 1.1 To the church of God that is with Cor- in Corinth and all the saints in the whole of Achaia. Ephesians 1.1 To the saints who are at Ephesus. Philippians 1.1 To the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Colossians 1.1 To the saints. You, you get this? That this overwhelming description or way of addressing the church is to call them saints. Holy ones. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being made a Holy. So what does it mean to be holy? The root of the word holy is simply to be set apart. So when when God looks on the church and he says these are saints, he's saying I've set them apart. The first usage of the word holy in the Bible occurs in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. When God sets the Sabbath apart as holy. Because God had created in six days and rested on the seventh. And he he says, you are to set aside the seventh day, the Sabbath, which would be Saturday for rest. And set it apart and it's yours to enjoy. Now, I want you to think through this with me. What made the Sabbath, what makes Saturday different from every other day? Well, today it's because it's college football for at least the next 12 weeks. But functionally, Saturday is the same as Friday, isn't it? Weather patterns aren't particular or unique to Saturday. The sun rises and sets at roughly the same time it does on Friday. Saturday isn't special in and of itself. There's nothing unique about the Sabbath day. That 24-hour period, virtually identical to every other 24-hour period. What makes it special is it is set apart for a particular use. It says you're to work six days a week. In an agricultural environment, they're farming, they're keeping sheep. And then on the seventh day, you're to rest. Enjoy your life. Let God provide for you and trust Him to do it. And so the Sabbath is special and holy in that it is set apart 
for unique purposes. Every other day, work. The Sabbath, rest. Now, then people got involved with what constitutes work and all the things we couldn't do, but no one ever asked the question, like, what constitutes rest? For example, if you're a commercial fisherman, I would understand how fishing on the Sabbath might be considered work. But if you're a guy who does something else and fishing might be for you rest and a good pastime for your kids. So no one got into that discussion. It was just a list of the things we shouldn't do. But what they were certain of was to keep the Sabbath distinct and separate. So much so that when Nehemiah sees people trying to transact business on the Saturday, he threatens to come down and beat them up. Right. So the Sabbath Set apart and holy. Now later in Exodus 31, we're going to talk about the Sabbath. In chapter 31, verse verse 14 of Exodus, you're going to find some discussion and tension around how the Sabbath should be used. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it. That soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, I want you to to think about this. We have a tension now between holy and profane. That which is holy, which is set aside for special purposes versus something that is profane. Now, when we think of the word profane, we might think of profanity or words that that your mom would wash your mouth out for, for saying. But when the Bible uses the word profane here, that's not what's going on. To profane the Sabbath is to misuse it by working on it. It's not that that work in and of itself is bad, but it's that misusing what God has given for rest and enjoyment was a problem with. Now, unless you think that that we still, still say, oh, you have to have the Sabbath, the Bible says that Jesus is our rest. Now, it's a good rhythm of life to take time for rest, to appreciate God's work, to trust Him to provide for you. But there's no command given to us particular to Saturday. Christ has fulfilled that for us. But what you find just in this one example is that that which is holy is set aside, not just to be set aside, but with a particular purpose. And that which is profaning it is to misuse it. It's to use it for some other purpose. You'll also find the language of comparison between holy and common In the Old Testament. So that which is special in its purpose and set aside for for certain uses versus common uses. And the concept of holiness is, is this. Is that a holy thing or person is a thing or person set aside for God. Set aside for his possession and purpose. Set aside from sin for God's possession, pleasure and purpose. That's holiness. Is you're a holy people. That's who you are. And I find it interesting that, that in, in, in 1 Peter 2, he's told us you are these things, but he's also said in the previous verses, 1 through 8 of chapter 2, you're becoming these things by the work of God. So that God has declared us to be a holy people, and yet he is practically working through his spirit to make that ever more a reality in our lives, which has two basic components to it. One is that ethically and morally, we are beginning to be more and more like Jesus, rejecting sin the way he did, living a pure life, not perfectly, but increasingly more so as the spirit of God works in us. And that practical holiness becomes a reality. We have tended in our discussion of holiness to stop there. So much so that, that this word is a bad word in popular culture. I mean, when is the last time in popular culture you've heard the word holy used with a positive connotation? 
I mean, you might call someone a holy roller, particularly if they bring streamers to church, and you might call someone holier than thou if they kind of have this I'm better than you attitude. And, and that's a cut down, by the way, if you didn't know. Like, it might seem positive that you're relatively more holier, holier than the next guy, but, but in its practical use, it, it's a criticism. Interesting that this word that God esteems, that, that is constantly referred to as part of the essential nature of his character, that he's called his people to, has become a bad word for us. A word that you popularly don't want to be called. Part of it, I think, is we've got this concept of holiness that ends with doing good and being good. And we can call ourselves holy if there's a list of bad things we don't do and a list of religious things we do. Holy. And what we miss there is this whole intention of God's calling us as his people. That holiness is just as much about moral purity as it is about a missional pursuit of living life so that other people will know Jesus. A commitment to make disciples. You see that? He says in, in First Peter 3, you've been made a kingdom of priests to minister on behalf of me to the people, on behalf of these lost people to me. So the priest takes up the role of prayer and intercession and pleading for lost men and women. And the priest takes up the role of sharing the good news with those who don't know. The priest takes up the role of helping the immature grow to maturity. He says, this is your calling. I've set you aside for this purpose so that you would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. Now you think about this word, proclaim. It literally means to thoroughly declare. So that there would be no corner of the earth where this good news hasn't been proclaimed. Like Jesus says in Mark 16, take the good news and preach it to all creation. See, we've decided that there's holiness, which is living good, godly lives. And then there's mission, which is uh, telling someone about Jesus. But what the Bible says is that these are integrated realities. That when we're a holy people, it doesn't just mean we're, we're better morally than the world around us. To be called a holy people means that we embrace the mission we've been given. And we want to live for that. We want to live so that mature disciples are raised up. So that the nations are reached. So that the lost find Him. So that the sick are healed and the weak are strengthened. This is the mission we've been given. To thoroughly declare Him. Because of this, our understanding of our family is not an inward, close-knit experience that never changes. If you're in a small group here, I'm sure one of the tensions you feel is, is things are just getting really close and we're just getting somewhere. And then what happens is we have some new people come in and now we feel like we're set back. And, and all of a sudden that, that transparency and that intimacy, it, it, it takes a step in the wrong direction. And then we, we kind of build some more relationship with these people. We get stronger. And then one of them gets this crazy idea that, that there's no one in his neighborhood doing this. And he wants to start a small group in his neighborhood. So then a few couples leave and we miss them because we, man, we love them. And we don't get to hang out with them as much as we used to. And that process is going to play out over and over and over again. And the reason for it is that there's this mission that we've been given as a family. Which means we don't get to stay in the same room all the time. Because we want the family to grow. Uh, think about this. We're reading Swiss Family Robinson with my boys right now, and it's great. You've got a husband and a wife, four sons on a deserted island. The family will never grow. Right? It's going to dead end after a generation. Well, why? Well, 
It's not a possibility, right? We're going to have to leave in order for that to happen. We're going to have to spread out. We're going to have to move apart. If you were to raise your family like that on a compound and they'd never leave, you'd never have grandchildren, right? You've got to send them off somewhere. They've got to find a husband, find a wife, and then all of a sudden the family grows and new blessings come into the family. Now that changes a lot. I can remember holidays growing up where we all got together at mom and dad's house. We were the only grandkids for on either side. And so aunts and uncles would be there. Both sets of grandparents would be there. And it was awesome. That experience isn't possible anymore. Mom and dad don't have an 8,000 square foot house to fit all these children. And we all have, you know, other families and nieces and nephews. And so it, you, you can't be like it was. But we want the family to grow. That's hard. We do want you to feel connected in love, but ultimately that's not the point that ends in itself. John 13 and 17 that we looked at last week says that loving connection you have to one another is ultimately about the mission and the gospel being believed by the non-believing world. So we struggle with this calling to be an outward-facing family. And I want to just identify what some of them are. One is that this will require change, particularly as communities change. Uh, so, so my parents are going to this uh, old Danish Lutheran church. It's an evangelical church that uh, has Lutheran heritage and was founded by the, one of like, the first Danish settlements in Texas. And one of the things that, that they're experiencing is that their community is not Danish or Lutheran. Most of their community are people that are, are, are guys working on farms that surround this area where it is. Most of them Spanish is their first language. And so their church is changing. Because this is where God's planted us. This is who we're to minister to. And so we're going to do it. And so if you were to go to a Bible study this last week that my dad was at with some guys in the church, you're going you're gonna to find it doesn't look like it did 20 years ago. And that's okay. It's not just okay, it's a good thing. If, if, if things were to change around here and all of a sudden in order to minister to our context, we, we'd need to, you know, add a little Latin flair to the music. I guess we'd figure out how to do that. Man, I don't know how. But we work on it. Because we want to reach people. We want to take away whatever the barriers are that keep people from understanding the gospel. We want to remove those. Because the gospel is an offense, right? And so let's take off everything else that makes it hard to understand. And so at least it gets simply communicated. That means we embrace change. Some of the change we're wrestling through as a church as we've gone through some transition is the reality that Tombo is no longer a small town. It's now part of a growing suburb. That's different. It changes the demographics of our city. It changes the experience of life in our city. It changes who we're ministering to and how, how they connect with other people. Everything's changed. That's hard. Second, when we embrace the fact that we're an outward-facing community, an outward-facing family, we have to recognize that we just got demoted. Is it no longer are we the most important person in the room? We all like to think that life is a movie and we're the main character. And when we embrace this way of thinking, that we're an outward-facing family with a mission to thoroughly proclaim the good news of Jesus, to make disciples of all nations, then Jesus becomes the most important person in the family. And the second most important people in the family are those not yet in the family. And that's hard. And, and then we get, I think, conceptual kind of struggles, right? Are we only going to do evangelism? Well, no, we're called to make disciples. 
So we want people who will grow, develop in their understanding of God, their maturity, their faithfulness to Christ, and then go faithfully take the message out. So we want to grow through multiplication, through raising up people to maturity, send them out into mission. Ultimately, if we just walk around talking about Jesus who we don't know or follow, that's not a believable message. Was well, this only missions? Is this only global missions? Again, no. We want to send people out to the nations because they all need to know Jesus, but they've got to grow here and we've got to work together to build a local church that can sustain sending people. God has been gracious in that area to this church and we've been faithful, but there's always room to grow and we want to. And, and this is why I think this is so important, guys. This idea of family can backfire and hinder our willingness and ability to pursue the mission. We can get into a group of people that we all know, that we've known for years, that we really like. And it's safe and it's comfortable. And it's enjoyable. I mean, it's great when you're in a setting where you know everybody and they know you and they know your kids. And, and, and there's this comfort level there. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. In fact, Jesus commands us to continually be pressing out to the world around us, expanding the family so that more people will know Jesus and walk with him. And the promise is this, and I've seen it firsthand. When we commit to that, the pain of, of maybe some distance and some relationships that we once had because we've decided to invest our time in the mission is more than made up for as we see God working. As we have joy as, as we see someone come to Christ. As we have joy as we see some, a Christian who's immature, who's struggling with some issues, begin to walk in victory. That, that those life changes that we start to see happening, uh, they bring us far more joy than we'd ever imagine. And, and what we find is that as we begin to then reconnect with those people that we aren't spending as much time with because our community and our family has grown, it's a sweeter time. It's a time where we pray for each other as we're both committed to the mission together. It's a time where we encourage each other, where we get to celebrate how God is using that person as well. And the Spirit brings all sorts of joy into that. But it is hard. And it will require sacrifice. But it's worth it. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that there's a family you've been invited to and we are not perfect, but Jesus is. And his commitment to us that he demonstrates on the cross was not only to pay for our sins, but to completely transform us by his grace. And I want to invite you into the family today. If you've never trusted him, it's as simple as as in your heart, believing that you are a sinner deserving of his judgment, but that God in his love for you poured it out on his son. And that he rose from the dead with victory and the promise of eternal life for you. And if you'll trust him today, He will redeem you, forgive you, send His Holy Spirit to empower you to walk with Him, and He'll bring you into a new family that isn't perfect, that has problems, so you'll fit in just nicely. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your goodness. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who not only has called us, but that You have called us to Yourself to send us out. 
to make us a people with a mission and a purpose and that there's great joy in pursuing that and that you've promised that when we pursue that, you clothe us with power from on high, that you're with us, that you'll never leave or forsake us. Lord, I thank you for the joy that is found in faithfulness, even when it brings hardship, even when it means that we uh, spend more time in new relationships, ministering and pouring ourselves out. And, and, and Lord, I pray that you would equip us for that, that you'd strengthen us for that, and that when we do come back together with those that we've known for years and years and years, that that would be a sweet time of celebrating what you're doing. We pray that our family would grow, that you would bring, even today, lost men and women and children into the family through faith, that their destiny and eternity would be changed from death to life, that sins would be wiped away and your spirit would be placed within them. Lord, we would rejoice in you doing that today. In Jesus' name, amen.